If you would, go ahead and remain standing and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And once again, just for context this morning, we'll we'll begin reading at verse 3 in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Please be seated. Last week, we started with a quote from the Scottish evangelist Oswald Chambers, where he warns readers in the Sermon on the Mount to beware of placing the Lord as teacher first instead of as Savior first. He said that we must know him first as Savior before his teaching can have any meaning to us. But for those of us that are born again, we know Christ first as Savior, that he came to make us what he teaches us we should be. We see that the Sermon on the Mount is a statement of life that we will live when the Holy Spirit has his way with us. This is the beauty and the simplicity of the sermon that Jesus preaches. That we are called to ideals of perfect righteousness. Every man, woman, child, whether a believer or not, is called to be perfectly righteousness perfectly righteous, but we know that this is impossible without the intervening work of Christ. For those that are believers, we're made into a new creation. We're brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. We're being sanctified, changed, made more and more to reflect the image of Christ. As we said last week, as, we, as we've seen so far in this sermon, it's only through the work of Christ that we can even begin to reflect the character of Christ that's found in the Beatitudes. It's only through the saving work of Christ and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that our sinful nature is overcome. We know that there is nothing in and of ourselves that can produce any of these traits that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. So as believers, it's not as if it weren't enough Christ justifies the believer before a holy God. Christ works through the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to make us more into the image of Christ. 
so that one day through glorification we can have that perfect righteousness. As Oswald Chambers said, reminded us that we are made to be what Jesus teaches us to be. If we look at those Beatitudes, you have somewhat of a double blessing here. That You have the idea that God makes you able to be, let's say, poor in spirit. But then those that are poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of heaven. He makes us be able to mourn over our sins and then gives us comfort in that mourning. He makes us meek and we shall inherit the earth, hunger and thirst for righteousness, and then he satisfies us. As he makes us merciful, we receive mercy. As he makes us pure in heart, we shall see God. As he makes us peacemakers, we shall be called the sons of God. And even when the world reviles us and hates us and persecutes us, we're reminded that ours is the kingdom of heaven. So as we look at this text this morning again, I'd remind you that Christ makes us what he teaches us we should be. We saw last week that we are the salt of the earth. And I'd remind you the emphatic words that Christ used here. You are the salt of the earth. Not you must be, not you can be, but that you are the salt of the earth. In that we see the believers who preserve the world around them. This is how God shows his forbearance towards sinners. This is how he shows his mercy by not stamping out mankind at the very first sign of disobedience. We're called to be moral disinfectants in a world. And you can look around the world and see its moral standards are low and lowering every day. We can see that the moral standards are constantly changing if even anyone agrees that there are moral standards. We saw that we can find real joy in life, that it is only the believers that can understand and live out their purpose and meanings in life. It is the believer that has a hope for eternity. It's a believer that finds joy and finds the true faith flavor in life. So our preserving nature, our hope, our joy, this makes us offensive to unbelievers. The gospel is an offense to unbelievers. And we see that with this idea of we are the salt of the earth. If you pour salt in a wound, the wound isn't going to like it. The world will wretch at the very touch of the gospel, at the very hearing of the gospel. We see all over the world the persecution has come, will come, will continue to come. That there will be a hatred for believers Christ warns us that there will be suffering that will come because of what he's made us to be. But we have that beautiful last beatitude in there. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For true believers, you're called to God by God to salvation is only through the completed work of Christ that we can have these inward and outward changes that we see in the Sermon on the Mount. 
As Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So Christ gives us the change, teaches us what we will be as we are sanctified, as we are glorified, as we will be in eternity. And then promises that we will persevere through the entirety of this life. Today we pick up in verse 14 where we left off with Jesus making an even bolder statement than saying you are the salt of the earth. He says you are the light of the world. This would have been a shocking message for Jews at the time. For any rabbi, any teacher, anyone coming to make saying that you, followers of Christ, are the light of the world. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that the coming of Christ, he, he prophesied of the coming of, Lord's, of the Lord's chosen servant. He prophesied, thus says the Lord, who created the heavens and the earth, stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to all the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. Isaiah would go on to prophesy, saying, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light of the nations that my salvation may be reached to the ends of the earth. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says about himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's already a bold statement for Jesus, speaking to the Jews, saying, I am the light of the world. Now we have this even bolder statement saying that those who follow me will be, they are, them and believers only are the light of the world. Christ publicly claimed in John and all the Gospels to be the light that Isaiah prophesied. The light among nations that will open the eyes of the blind, that will bring prisoners out of the dungeon, remove people from the darkness, and put them in the light. And that is what Jesus says to you in here as believers, that you are the light of the world. So how can it be that Jesus is the light to the nations and believers are the light of the world. Jesus tells his followers that they are the light of the world. And the answer to this is very, very simple. Jesus is the source of that light, and believers are made to reflect that light into a dark world. The theologian Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse used to explain it to his students in this way. When Christ was in the world, he was a bit like the sun, which is here for the day, and gone at night. But when the sun goes down, the moon comes up. And the moon is a picture of the church, of believers and followers of Jesus Christ. The moon shines, but it does not shine by its own light. It shines only because it reflects the light of the sun. 
Christ makes believers the light of the world, he makes believers to reflect the light that Christ is. Turn with me to John chapter 12. Jesus gives a a little bit deeper of an explanation in this. John chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 35. Jesus says, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. We skip ahead a bit to verse 44 in the same chapter. Christ says, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees uh, who, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in it may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Christ makes it very clear who the source of this light of salvation is. The purpose of it. So that those who believe in him will not remain in darkness. For those that are believers, Christ makes them sons of light. The sons and daughters of God himself. Just as we saw last Sunday, our text should not be looked at as some kind of burden or a chore that we now have if we've confessed faith in Christ. Rather, it is the outpouring of what Christ has accomplished and done in your life. Again, the text does not say that you have to be the light of the world. It doesn't say that you can be. It doesn't say that you should be or will be. It says that you are. That's an emphatic statement of the work that Christ has done in a believer's life. If we go back to our text and keep reading in verse 14... He says, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. If believers are the light of the world, it is much like a city on a hill. You cannot hide a city on a hill. We can look at it during the daytime. We can look at it during the daytime even without its own lights. During the daytime, we can see the gates, the buildings, the homes. We can see from far away this city on a hill. But in darkness, we see it even brighter because any city is going to have the lights in it. And setting on a hill, you cannot hide this. So why does Christ make us the light of the world? What is the purpose? What do we do with this? He makes it very clear in the text. We don't hide it. We don't snuff it out when it gets dark. We use the light. We put it on a stand. We light our homes. We light the city streets. 
it just makes no sense to hide. Just like salt being able to lose its saltiness can't happen. It's just as absurd to look at light and say that we will use it to put it under a basket and we will keep the light to ourselves. We will hoard it to ourselves and not let it light up the darkness. Christ, Christ made us the light of the world to have believers point others to the source of that light. To point others to the source of creation, the source of our hope, the source of mercy and of grace, and the source of our salvation. In the Gospel of John, in the very first chapter, he describes John the Baptist coming. He describes it in this way, saying, There is a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was, coming in, the, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. But to all that did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were, not born of, who, were, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The light and gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to display darkness in this world, is to, to displace darkness. Please don't write down display. It's meant to displace the darkness of the world. The light that Christ makes us to be is meant to be shared and spread across this world. The light is meant to expose the sins of the world, to drag that which is done in darkness into the light of day, to expose sin to the sinner, to expose God's holiness, to expose his forbearance, to expose his patience and his mercy and his grace and his love to a people that do not want to hear about it. Jesus continues in verse 16 of our text saying, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If Christ makes us to be the light of the world, if we are reflecting the light of Christ, the one who has bought and paid for our salvation, How often do we sit and think about that, that we have been made to reflect the image of the glory of God? To reflect the image of the creator and the sustainer of the universe, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end. We were made for that purpose. And as believers, we must do our best to reflect the light of Christ in our lives. We can go back to what we teach our children. The very first question of most catechisms, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We do that by reflecting what Christ has done in our lives. We can only do that 
if Christ has saved us. There's no other way. We can look at the life of Paul. In Acts chapter 26, he stands before King Agrippa and he's giving a defense. The Jews have accused him, accused him of blasphemy, but Paul is a Roman citizen, so he stands before the king to make his defense. He says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify, and according to the strictest party of our religions, I lived as a Pharisee. Paul said of himself, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to, for, uh, to foreign cities." The same Paul that persecuted Christians, that hated them, that cast his lot in to kill them, that seek to persecute them, that seek to try to make them blaspheme their God. We can look at Paul's conversion and see what the light of Christ did in Paul's life. Paul, speaking of his own conversion, said, At midday, O king, I saw on the way... Uh, on the way, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus of uh, whom you are persecuting. But arise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending, to, uh, sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn away from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. We are no Paul, but we have the same calling. We are no Paul, but we have the same Holy Spirit. We are no Paul, but we have the light of Christ, and we are to reflect that light. After Paul's conversion, he and Barnabas are commissioned to go bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It is necessary that the word of God be spoken to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light among the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Throughout Scripture, we see Christ, His prophesied coming, when He comes, being the light of the world. 
This light brings the gospel. This light pays for our sin. This light overcomes the darkness. There will be many that say that the, the, the presence of light is actually what creates darkness. But it's the other way around. We have darkness in the world. It is a thing, especially when we use it like a metaphor like this. It is the filth and the sin and the disobedience that all of us have committed. Paul, when he was writing to the church of Thessalonica, he reminded them of this, that the completed work of Christ has changed believers. Paul writes that, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, speaking of the the coming of Christ. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness, so let us not sleep as others do. Let us not keep awake or let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, we must be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or we are asleep, that we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as you're doing. If we go back to that quote from Oswald Chambers, warning us that if we look at the teachings of Christ and all we see is teaching, then we gain nothing. We gain nothing from that. But for those who believe, for those who are called to salvation, for those that see Christ as a Savior first and then a teacher, Christ makes us what he teaches us we should be. For those that have been called to saving faith, Christ made you both salt and light. He doesn't say once again, He doesn't say you can be, you should be, you have to be, you must be. He says you are these things. If you're a believer, you are a new creation. You're being conformed to the image of Christ. You're being sanctified. You're being changed daily. And you're reflecting more and more and more of the righteousness of Christ. And if you're not, I would be concerned. As we'll continue to see, and we're going to get into hard topics coming up in the days to come, speaking of divorce and lust and adultery and how we treat each other, how we treat our enemies, how we should love each other. It's my prayer that we don't forget the simple beauty of the Sermon on the Mount. The simple beauty that we find in in the gospel. That apart from Christ, as Paul, as, as Paul writes in Romans, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. This Christ whom God put forward is the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith and by faith alone. Paul makes this abundantly clear. Apart from Christ, we are better than no one. We are just as bad. But for Christ, we would suffer the wrath of God because all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. But through Christ, he provides a way for us to be justified, to be judicially right in front of God, something that we can never do on our own. We're put into right standing before a just and holy God through the grace of God, through the redemption that's in Christ, and only that. As Paul reminds the church at Ephesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, this is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. As I said before, we're, we're going to continue on in the Sermon on the Mount. Next week, Casey will begin talking about how Jesus viewed the law, what he came to do with the law, Then we start tackling these things which you are going to find have imperatives in them. Things that we should do or should not do. But I want to be very clear that we cannot lose sight of this first portion of the Sermon on the Mount. We must remember that Jesus here, while talking to great crowds, is speaking to only believers. Not that everyone in the crowd was a believer, but the sermon was for those who believe. What Jesus shows in here is the fruit of sanctification. For the believer, that's what we see. What he enables us to be able to do through the completed work of Christ. For the unbeliever, you will see an insurmountable Righteousness, something that you cannot overcome on your own. I also want to be very clear that the Sermon on the Mount is not how you become saved. The work that is in here, the way that you should live your life, that does not and cannot and will not save you. It also doesn't prove that you are saved. Anyone can fake it for a while. doesn't keep you saved. And it doesn't assure you of your salvation. All of that is in Christ and Christ alone. The Sermon on the Mount is not setting standards of holiness 
so that a person can be saved. If you become this good, then you belong to Christ. Rather, it's showing what the completed work of Christ, along with the inner working of the Holy Spirit, will produce in believers. One day, not in this world, it'll produce it perfectly. So please, if you take nothing else away from this, please do not see. We talk about the work that the Lord has done in believers. We talk about that being the fruit of salvation, but it is not the path of salvation. It is not the source of salvation. It is the result of salvation. Only faith that, believe, that leads to the belief in Christ and the repentance of sin can bring a person to salvation. And if that has happened to you, there is another true statement that we could put in here. That true salvation, true belief in Christ, a, 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 a true transformation from being dead in your sin to being alive in Christ will produce good works. Often people think James argued with Paul about this, but I don't think he actually did. James wrote in James chapter 2, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Can the faith without works save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one says to them, Go in peace, be warm and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder at that fact. So believers, we need to examine ourselves and see what the fruit of our salvation is. These good works that we were made before the foundation of the world to walk in, they serve a purpose. And that is bring glory and honor to the Lord and to point others to the grace and mercy that Christ offers. William Barclay wrote that the Christian never thinks of what he has done, but what God has enabled him to do. We never seek to draw the eyes of men to ourselves, but always direct them to God. So long as men are thinking of the praise, the thanks, the prestige, which we will get for what we've done, they have not really even begun the Christian way. church family, as long as we draw breath on this earth, we will never perfectly meet the standards found in the Sermon on the Mount. And we shouldn't be discouraged by that. Because apart from Christ, we wouldn't have a desire to meet them. We wouldn't be able to meet a single instant of it, a single second of it. But we should be encouraged and reminded that Christ is making us into what he is teaching us to be. As Oswald Chamber put it, we see that the Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life that we will live when the Holy Spirit has his way with us.
So we should find encouragement in the times that we can look at this and say, I have a desire to follow this because God gave you that desire to do these things. We can also be encouraged in the times in which we utterly fail to do these things. Because it's Christ and Christ alone that holds our salvation. It's Christ who guarantees that we will persevere to the end. When we fail, we need to remember that our eyes have been opened. When we fail, go back to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Look at those Beatitudes again and recognize that Christ gives you the ability to do that. When we fail, we become poor in spirit. When we fail, we should mourn our disobedience. It should cause meekness. We should hunger and thirst for righteousness at those times in which we fail. When we fail, even more so than when we're succeeding, we need to be merciful. We need to be peacemakers. We need to become more pure in heart. So as we close out this, these very few verses where Jesus begins to transition to the law and how Christians should live, We need to remember what Christ says, that I have made you. You are these things. Believers and believers alone, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. If your life is not forever marked by what Christ has done for you, you need to examine your salvation. If you find no desire to do the things of the Lord, no desire to go out and share what the Lord has done with you, if you have no desire for sanctification, I would question your salvation. Not to be mean, but because we see all over Scripture what Christians will become when God works on their heart. Paul urges multiple churches to, to examine themselves. In 2 Corinthians, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. What is the test? Christ said, we'll be known by our fruit. Paul also wrote, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my present, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both, the will, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When we had the men's retreat a few weeks ago, we looked at just a very specific verse at the end of 1 Timothy where Paul is ending his letter and sending his well wishes to Timothy. And there's one striking thing that is in there that he urges Timothy to take hold of what Christ has given him. Take hold of your salvation. Here's this to Timothy. 
And I urge this to you today if you're a believer. Pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. If you're here today and you've not put your faith in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, I hope the Sermon on the Mount scares you because it does lay out the ideal of perfect righteousness. That is the only way to have communion with God is to be able to show perfect righteousness. If you've ever told a lie, if you've ever taken something that's not yours, if you've ever looked at someone of the opposite sex with lustful intentions, we can go through all ten of the commandments, if you've ever taken the Lord's name in vain, you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We believers are no better than unbelievers. The only difference is that we have taken hold of the salvation that Christ offers And even that we can't take credit for because it's a work that Christ does in one's heart. It's a a work that when the heart is spiritually alive once again brings a person to faith in Christ, that brings a person into belief and brings a person into repenting of their sins. So I'd urge you, if you have not placed your faith and trust in Christ, I urge you to do so. Call out for salvation. Recognize your sin and repent and turn from it. My prayer for all of us today is that we would take hold of the salvation that we have, that we would not fight the idea that God has made us these things and our lives should reflect them. It's not a burden, it's not a chore. I'll close us with this, a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who said, The Lord Jesus is a deep sea of joy. My soul shall dive therein, shall be swallowed up in delights of his, of his society. Do we believe that the Lord Jesus is a deep sea of our joy? And are we willing to dive in and be swallowed up by the joy that comes with Christ. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that once again, even in our sin, while we were traitors against a holy God, while we blasphemed, while we had held idols, usually just of ourself, Lord, held ourselves to be more important than the things of God, Lord, that that you loved so much that you show mercy, that you offer grace, Lord, that you would send your Son to become that perfect righteousness so that for those that believe and take hold of their salvation, Lord, that when you look at us, poor sinners, those of us that believe that you see the perfect righteousness of Christ. Lord, I pray for any here that have not found that faith, Lord, that may be dealing with questions of 
sin and desires, Lord, I, I just pray that you would convict them, that you would bring them to a realization of their sin, that you would cause them to repent, Lord, that they would place their faith in you. Lord, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, as we prepare to sing again, let this time be encouraging to us. Uh, let it be glorifying to you. It's in your heavenly name we pray. Amen.